Welcome back, listeners, to Christianity and Classical Culture. We are on episode one. I'm Stephen Heiner, and my guest, as always, for these episodes is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, so great to have you with us today. It's good to be back with you. We're going to look at a subject that you had actually picked for discussion prior to a major news event in the United States, and that is the legalization of homosexual so-called marriage. And interestingly, this is something that you have dealt with, not just uh, in your role at the Rockford Institute, not just in Chronicles, but in many different ways and many different correspondences for many, many years, uh, might I say 20 years or so, Dr. Fleming. So this is yes, a, it, this isn't a new question for you. Uh, no, not not at all. It, it has taken twenty years for me, really, uh, to come to grips with the uh, with the fundamental question. It first came up when I was interviewed by Newsweek um, some twenty years ago, and they wanted to know my view of divorce. And I told them that strengthening divorce laws would not do any good. That we needed to liberate marriage from uh, the government. And they were horrified. They were willing to. Uh, they were willing to uh, consider the idea that we need stronger divorce laws, but the idea that people should should marry according to Christian traditions, and uh, and uh, sort of mind their own business and ignore the government. Uh, even some of my strongest Christian friends were uh, were horrified by it as much as the editors of Newsweek. So it's been it's taken 20 years to work out the the implications of that. Well, and not being a politician, I suppose you don't have the luxury of having to change your position uh, as times times and polls dictate. Yeah, well, that's why I'm not a politician. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose we should we should get into the topic itself. We're we're at the in the last week of June of 2015, and much to um, many people's rejoicing, although we can't really say how many people. Uh, the the laws have changed in the United States due to a Supreme Court ruling. And pursuant to something you mentioned in the Zero episode, Dr. Fleming, I experienced a, an odd feeling uh, a few days ago at when this ruling really went viral in the United States on, on Facebook. And a number of people had changed their their profile photos to reflect this this rainbow thing. It was very being promoted by Facebook, and I felt this feeling that you spoke about and addressed in episode zero, which is this this discouragement. You you think to yourself, wow, I've you know some of these friends I have picked, some of these friends they've just been acquaintances, but they're all so horribly wrong on this issue. And you think of the burden of having to sit down and say, look, let's go way back to the beginning and try to explain to you why I'm opposed to this uh, and, and, and in a larger context. And you're, you're, you're discouraged and you think, how many, why is it that so many people who I find to be reasonable, uh, friendly acquaintances can get this so wrong? And I think that's precisely why I look forward to hosting this episode today was because I thought that speaking to you about this and looking back at the Christian tradition and at the classical tradition, we might deal with some of that discouragement from this latest, we could say setback, but I would say it's just the reality of things. If, if, uh, if yeah. um, Russell Kirk had had his way and had the original title of the book, you know, the conservative route, um, the route still continues. Yes, indeed. Every every generation uh, since the uh, French Revolution has been running away, not just from conservative and Christian principles, but running away from human reality into complete fantasy world that uh, could have been dreamed up, you know, by uh, in in a drug haze somewhere. So, uh, but this, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that. Almost all of us are sheep, and as, it, as we are told, all we like sheep have gone astray. That is, in any generation, people will go with fashion. Rather, they won't think through the subjects themselves, and in the absence of an authoritative tradition, such as the church once represented, in, in a world where it's a, everybody makes up his own smorgasbord of, uh, 
of, of different opinions. Uh, well, I sort of like rap, but on the other hand, uh, Oklahoma's pretty good too. And, uh, but, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't see why I can't be a Marxist and a homosexual propagandist. We just, this is, people just pick whatever seems to come their way by accident from their teachers or friends, and they put together just willy-nilly these ridiculous, contradictory sets of opinions, which they usually call, quote, my philosophy. And what I think we want, that's what we want to get away from. We want to get away from this capricious business of my philosophy or what I think or in my opinion. I think what we want to do is to get a feeling, an understanding of what is the great tradition, the great classical and, uh, and uh, Christian tradition on this, but also a, a tradition which is rooted in the reality of human life. And unfortunately, most of the, the crazier things going on, whether it's redistribution of wealth or redis reassignment of sex roles, this is all science fiction, and it has nothing to do with the way people actually live. One of the things I want to share with our listeners are a couple premises that undergird today's discussion of marriage, and there are things that uh, I've, I've learned from you and from, from other um, teachers at different Rockford Institute events over the years where I've had an opportunity to be exposed to some of these ideas along with my own studies. And the, the, the first one is government will not save us. And the second is that we have responsibilities, not rights. And if you could address both of those points, Dr. Fleming, I think you'll set us up to have a more fruitful discussion about today's topic. Uh, good. One of the, uh, there are, there are sort of these these ideas that you're right are are, are intersecting because today uh, what we think of the hu human beings are people with rights or claims on their fellow man and these rights are usually in sort of invented uh, they're, they're taken out of the air you know children have rights uh, we we make up these things. And the only way of enforcing these rights, of course, is through government action. So rights, uh, the, the assertion of rights in the modern world is really an assertion of the power of government at the expense of people. And unfortunately, the history of modern governments, at least over the past 200 years, is really not very encouraging. As government grows, that is, as it acquires authority over education, over morality, over the family, over the culture, then the power and the authority and ability of the, of the men and women who are supposed to be actually living and acting, this is diminished. The, the grand illusion of American culture and political life is that when there is a moral or cultural problem, that somehow a law can be passed or a program can be set up to address it. First, you need a white paper report. You need a, a, a panel of experts. And of course, in the end, the white paper report is filed somewhere and the problem continues to get worse and worse and worse, whether the problem is juvenile delinquency or drug abuse or divorce or the abuse of children. And the fact is that these are, these are moral problems which, and spiritual problems which have to be addressed on the moral and spiritual level, and government cannot do that by its very nature. The institutions that can do this, of course, are churches, uh, families, and uh, and uh, and and uh, and there are also cultural traditions of education, all of which have to be more or less independent of uh, of the cynical people who seize power and seize the right to take our money. So uh, really, if if we get over this notion that problems arise from denial of the rights of children or the rights of wives or the, 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 the rights of homosexuals, and that government is therefore going to then order us to behave in a certain way to secure those rights, if we push all that aside, we can begin to actually address what the real questions are. Well, I suppose we can get right into one of those questions then, Dr. Fleming. It, let's start with some propositions, and I'd like you to explain them a bit more in depth. 
The first is the idea that marriage is a binding relationship between one man and one woman. And if you want to go larger and more historically, if we look at Muslims and, and Middle Eastern Jews, more than, than one woman. Although I suppose my Western sensibilities might say that, that one's quite enough. Um, <laughs> of course, that's easy for the unmarried man to say. But uh, can you well, comment uh, on that, on, on that, pro- on that, Dr. Fleming? First of all, I mean, just if you look at the human race historically, we're, we're roughly 50-50, male and female. So if you have a society in which, uh, in which any man with wealth and power can take 50 wives, this is, this is going to lead to some serious social instability because a lot of men are going to be uh, driven out of the marriage market. So roughly speaking, roughly speaking, all monogamy, that is the marriage between, uh, between one man and one woman. Monogamy is the human norm, even in most polygamous societies, because it's only the top 5% usually who can afford to have more than one wife. And so otherwise, it's, uh, it's extremely impractical. The, 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 uh, if you read anthropology textbooks, they'll tell you about group marriage, which, by the way, has never been observed. It's a theoretical thing, you know, where all these men and women are sort of indiscriminately married to each other. Or they'll tell you about uh, polyandry, one wife and uh, several husbands. And there have been a few known cases of very sick, sick and dying societies where uh, typically they kill a lot of the girl babies at birth. And so this means there's a shortage of women. And so a pair of brothers will take one woman and, of course, work her to death as the, as the wife of two or three men. This is a terrible condition for a woman to be forced into. But, again, these societies don't make up one-tenth of one percent of human populations throughout the history of the world. So what we're dealing with, really, is, uh, is a man and a woman. Why a man and a woman? Well, that's really simple, because the function of marriage, the primary function of marriage throughout human history is to provide grandchildren. Because, you see, marriage is a union of two families, not so much of two individuals. Two families get together and they want, they want grandchildren, and, 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 in, and in most societies, they want the, 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 grand, the, the father's father wants somebody in the future to carry on his social position, to inherit his wealth, his citizenship, to carry on his name and memory. Children are a form of, of uh, immortality in this world, and that is primarily the function of marriage because, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not squirrels. We're not even gorillas. Our children require so much prolonged care you know, it takes, in America, our children aren't growing up at the age of 25. Believe me, I have four of them. Uh, and, but in, say, in a primitive society, they're growing up at about 16, 18. So that's a long commitment. And so this means that marriage is a long, pretty binding commitment between the two families so that the, that, that the bride and the groom will produce heirs and they will be around to take care of them because it's a child rearing is the most important job that any society has. Next statement, marriage is for the primary though not necessarily exclusive purpose of begetting and rearing children. And yeah. I think that's that's yeah. exactly what you just the, There are other aspects of marriage which are secondary, but uh, in, in civilized societies become very important. Married couples are fond of each other. They take care of each other. They provide companionship and friendship. But companionship and friendship and affection and, uh, and even, uh, and even uh, you know, sexual comfort, this is not the primary, the primary uh, object of marriage. The primary object of marriage is to secure future generations, and not just generically, not just in the sense of be fruitful and multiply, but to specific family groups. And so it's a, it's a union, it's a union 
between between family between different family traditions, and this is true. It's obviously true in the Old Testament, but it's true of Greek society. It's true of Roman society. It's true of ancient Egyptian society. It's true of uh, my own barbarian ancestors who were who were Celts and Germans and Slavs. So this is true of, of every, every known society from the, from the most primitive Eskimos and Bushmen of the Kalahari up to the most uh, civilized uh, Chinese and Europeans. So it's, it's, it's not, this isn't something where, you know, you, 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 know, you like, you say potato, I say potato, you, you, you like this tradition, I like that tradition. We're talking about something that is fundamental to the human condition. Without marriage, you're not human. It's, one, it's what distinguishes us, for example, from chimpanzees. Well, and Dr. Fleming, you mentioned this, uh, this, the practicum of grandchildren and property and citizenship. But for, for Christians, the additional context is it's, it's not just a choice, it's a command from God. That's right. That's right. And again, this, this is, this is it's very important uh, what you bring up because, you see, uh, again, the, 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 the classical traditions and, you know, pre-Christian traditions give us the natural foundations of marriage. They understood very well through nature what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to do it. Christianity, and, and in fact the Jewish tradition as well, adds to it this divine component it has the it is the nature of a commandment to be to be fruitful and multiply and as uh, as Christ tells us that it, it draws our attention to the fact that Adam and Eve one man one woman in uh, in and that was the original condition of marriage for the human race later on he points he says uh, Moses granted divorce because he knew that the Jewish people had hardened their hearts. And by, by the time of uh, Jesus, they, they, it was possible for a Jewish male simply to say, I don't like your cooking, and I see a girl across the street who's better looking than you are, so get out. It was hardly even divorce. It was simply a one-sided repudiation. And so marriage had really fallen on very uh, hard times uh, in uh, in the in the Jewish world at that time, it was much, I would say worse than the condition of uh, married women in uh, under Greek and Roman law. Well, I mean, we even see this in in the Gospel, right, Doctor Fleming? That uh, Joseph was confronted with this possibility that that Mary had had not uh, had not been true to him, and he had resolved to simply put her away. But this it was basically some legal function. I'm just going to put her yes. away. That, that's, that, yes. that was the ease of which it was done with at, at that time in the Judaic religion. Yes, and uh, because, you know, uh, a betrothal uh, in, in, uh, in, under their law and under, and under much ancient law and under medieval law, a betrothal was taken as seriously as the final, um, uh, uh, the final marriage ceremony. But really, in, uh, in, uh, the betrothal is the promise of, of the the two parties, the, the man and the woman, and their families, and to and the conditions under which that promise will be kept. You know, the arrangement of a dowry. The you know who who, who gets what, and uh, and the the actual marriage was all, the wedding was often uh, just a party, at the end of which the couple went off to a bedroom and consummated the union. And that consummation itself really is the essential other part. And so, yes, Joseph, uh, at that point, uh, was 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 prepared to walk away. So the third proposition I put to you is that marriage is a lifelong commitment entered into voluntarily by people capable of making a rational agreement and possessing the capacity to marry each other. And this speaks, obviously, to insanity, impotence, or degrees of uh, of relation. That's right. The uh, those those were the traditional grounds of uh, for uh, an annulment in the ancient and medieval church, and even even today, uh, you, they may be more broadly understood, and maybe too broadly understood. But that's essentially, you know, the the uh, the uh, the basis for annulling uh, uh, a marriage within within the church. The 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 
there has to be it has to be voluntary, which is not so true, by the way, under early Greek and Roman law. It was de facto voluntary. It's very hard to marry an impetuous young man off to a woman he hates, and even girls can be awfully sulky. Uh, I, you know, having two daughters, I can tell you, it's not always easy to force them to do what <laughs> to do what the parents uh, might think is best. But still, under Christian law, the will had to be given. There had to be a, a conscious willingness to say yes to the marriage, or if it was a it was if it was an enforced marriage, uh, that would be grounds for an annulment. And lifetime, because first of all, that is the Christian tradition. Interestingly, uh, of course, in ancient civilizations, divorce among the upper classes, you know, became quite common. Cicero and Julius Caesar both uh, both went through divorce. But um, the the so far as we can tell, the middle and lower classes uh, did not enjoy much luxury of divorce. The the, the ma- marriage. Uh, and family life were so much a part of their social and economic existence that it really wasn't possible. There's been a lot of nonsense written about it in the, the classical Greek world. We, you know, we can't find until the end of the fifth century. To, uh, we can, we can't even find uh, mentions of divorce cases. And there's nothing in Greek mythology, nothing even in legendary history. So we know pretty much that for the ancient Athenians and their and the and the or the Homeric Greeks, marriage marriage was for them also just just in their own natural terms, with their natural understanding, marriage was a lifetime commitment. The fourth proposition, Dr. Fleming, is that marriage is the foundation of the social order and the seed belt seedbed of the Commonwealth. Yes, this this uh, this was put brilliantly by Cicero, who called uh, who called the family the seminarium, the seed belt, uh, the seedbed of society. But it's it's the Ar- Aristotle you get. Uh, oh, sorry, the argument you get in Aristotle, you get it in Thomas Aquinas, you get it in in the in the great Protestant political theorist Althusius, and that is that uh, society begins with marriage and the creation of the household as a kind of social unit. But these households are bound together in larger kin groups like, you know, clans and tribes, which then eventually form a commonwealth such as the Greek city-state or eventually the whole Roman Empire. But that marriage is the foundation. And if you, in in a society that would make war on marriage, is like a, a is a society that's undermining its own authority and it's it's uh, it's it's sort of dynamiting its own foundations and that's that's what is so amusing about the Soviet Union and the American Union that is that they very foolishly are undermining have undermined their own social order by by undermining marriage. Well, it. Some might say at this point, Dr. Fleming, if you said and you've quoted Cicero uh, in defense of marriage and that government interfering here would be destroying society, we should stand against that and instead enlist government on our side of the issue. Now, I understand I'm, I'm contradicting the earlier premise that I had said that government will not save us, but I'm trying to address this towards people who haven't necessarily bought my underlying premise that I, I told you that I accept. Yeah. Why yeah. is it? Why and, is this premise more difficult? For, uh, sorry, not premise. Why is this uh, conclusion not one that you draw? Yeah, it is almost universally drawn by conservatives. This is one reason I don't call myself a conservative because they are still operate under the delusion that uh, that this marriage question is something that we can solve either through legislation, like the Defense of Marriage Act, put forward by the Republicans in Congress, or if we just had one more sound justice in the Supreme Court. And there are two problems with this. The, the, the small problem is the fact that uh, the political life in the United States is dominated by two parties that are equally committed to a revolutionary destruction of society and morality. They're called Democrats and Republicans. 
because they represent different class interests, so they have different names. But on the fundamental understanding, they really are not that much different. Now, there are more conservative uh, defenders of marriage uh, in, in, uh, in one party than another. But really, it is pretty impractical to hope that when you elect presidents like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, that a country that, can, that would do that is a country whose legislators are going to defend marriage. It's not, maybe this will happen in 100 years. But as we have seen over the past 30 or 40 years, our politicians have got weaker and weaker and weaker on all the moral questions. But there's a bigger issue, and that is that marriage precedes government. There's, you know, the, if you look at the early marriages in the Old Testament, there is no government. There is no commonwealth. These are patriarchal families. Marriage exists in all societies whether they have a political leadership or not and marriage marriage creates the commonwealth the commonwealth does not create marriage and as a result to transfer authority in this way is to turn is to turn things upside down and what most people don't seem to know is this is a is a fairly new idea in the history of our civilization down to about 1600, it was universally assumed that marriage in, was uh, a relationship that involved A, the, the man and the woman involved, B, their, their families, C, in the Christian world, it would receive the blessing of the church. But even the, and so the church had some, had moral regulatory authority. But the, 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 the kings of Europe, had almost no authority over marriage. And in fact, they, the kings of France, for example, were often the worst offenders <laughs> against, against the sanctity of marriage. I mean, there's, there's decree after decree against king after king or emperor after emperor in, uh, in France and uh, Europe at, at large for putting aside a wife in order to marry a mistress. And so government even in the Middle Ages, government was the problem, not the solution. So it's so it's a it's a twofold thing. Not only is our is our own political class, uh, both parties, not only are they the worst people uh, to imagine uh, taking control of marriage and making it better, uh, but also this is a this is something revolutionary. It was uh, it was Luther's worst idea. And we can talk about that at some other point, if you like. But it was Luther's worst idea. But even in the uh, Church of England, marriage was still left under the control of the church, not under the control of somebody like Henry VIII, who, <laughs> with his numerous divorces, was clearly not a person you'd want to give this power to. Well, in, and in many ways, Henry VIII was a founding father of the United States by this this uh taking of this power and leading us to this this spot where we are today where uh judges decide the fate of of a law for for millions or hundreds of millions yeah you know the idea that judges can uh can decide what marriage is well why can't they decide about the laws of gravity why can't they repeal, you know, marriage for the history of the human race, marriage is a social, biologically grounded human reality, okay? It's not, it's not something that a philosopher invented. It is, it is, it is what we are as human beings. There's, there's no getting around this. So if you can reinvent that biological reality, what about the laws of thermodynamics? What about the, law, what about the laws of gravity? Why can't the Supreme Court now say that you have a right to jump off the Empire State Building and land on your feet unscathed? It's about as sensible as what they did. Well, the argument that's, that's one of the many arguments that, that's used uh, by these uh, pro homosexual marriage advocates is this idea that marriage has evolved over time, ergo we should we should evolve with it. I think you've done a good job of addressing the fact that marriage preexisted the church and the church was trying to tame what had been the practice uh among these pagans. 
And it took a long time. It took a very long time to get that settled. So what do you think that they what do you think they mean when they say marriage has evolved? Because I think for you marriage has has not evolved. I think you have stated that it is pretty much what it always has been. Yeah, they what they want to do is they they think that by changing words you can change reality. And this is what social this is the whole purpose of social science. They make up terms and then they think those terms are are actual real real entities. Marriage hasn't changed. Uh, what, what, and in fact, very little has changed. Human propensity to be greedy and, and to be uh, lustful. You know, men committing uh, fornication and adultery or engaging in, in uh, sex with members of their same sex, this wasn't invented yesterday. This has been with us throughout human history. They're, you know, just as, you know, so is theft, so has lying. So has the the uh, the immoral exploitation of another man's labor, uh, murder. All of these things have been with us forever, but you know, and and we have to find ways of dealing with them, both both through law and through custom and through and through moral enlightenment. But suppose we we agreed now with uh, the French uh, wacky philosopher Proudhon that property is theft. Oh, well, that's a new definition of property, then, isn't it? So if theft, if property is theft, then theft is property. So that means that uh, Willie Sutton, when he went into the First National Bank and walked off with $50,000, he was simply engaging in a, proper, a property acquisition. And we're doing the same thing with marriage. If ma- we know what marriage has always been, and by the way, it is grounded in our biological nature. It's not simply something that some lawgiver once gave. So by changing names, we can say, oh, property now includes, uh, uh, marriage includes adultery. Marriage includes fornication. Marriage includes uh, homosexual friendship or whatever. Well, fine, you can make up whatever words you want to. It's not going to change the nature of marriage. The, 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 one of the most bizarre things is uh, maybe our, our, our listeners have not been, uh, had, not had the misfortune of, of living, for, as I have, in cities like San Francisco. And I've known a lot of, a lot of homosexuals. And uh, some of them I was even on very friendly terms with. You know, they were workmates. And, uh, you know, some of them were uh, in reasonably decent people in many respects. But the one thing they were always was promiscuous. No matter if they said, well, they would even refer to people as their wife or their husband, and they would, you know, they would uh, they would pretend to have a stable relationship, but the stable relationship never precluded constant cheating. Now they, and in fact, they were they bragged about this, and they, and they still brag about it. Now, how in the world are such when you have that is their lifestyle, which is which is radically promiscuous. With such a lifestyle, they're not interested in marriage. So this whole issue is just completely invented out of nothing. Well, you you cited Henry VIII as this sort of massive pushback on the church's civilizing influence on this. But Henry VIII acted. No one really bought into any sort of philosophy that he had other than he was was making um, his way with with his might. We then start to have intellectual backup for his behavior, and uh, I've heard you describe this in a series of stages. So what happens in the so-called enlightenment to marriage? Because obviously they don't change marriage laws during that time period, but we start to see some pushback. Yeah, you. one of the things you get, for example, you get from John Locke, who is often regarded as the godfather of the American Revolution. Locke says that... Uh, Marriage has several functions, one of which is to bear and, and bring up children. But once the children reach a certain age, then rational, enlightened people who no longer wish to live with each other uh, should be free to divorce. Now, you know, Locke, first of all, makes some factual errors. For example, he thinks that children... Uh, when they're a 20-year-old, if his parents get divorced, is not harmed by this. 
If you talk to people whose parents got divorced when they were in college, they will tell you that it was a devastating blow. They felt somehow illegitimate, as if either if they'd been better children, their parents might have stayed together, or, it, it, they, or that uh, somehow uh, they, they never really belonged to a family. So it's a, it, it really is very harmful, even when it happens to, uh, to uh, grown-up children. But second of all, the, 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 what Locke is beginning to push for, and you get it in, uh, in the, the entire Enlightenment, is that ma marriage is a rational relationship, that it's a, between rational people who are seeking friendship and comfort. And uh, this is not the function and purpose of marriage. And by, by, tw by twisting it like this, they then, they then open the door to uh, divorce when marriage becomes unfulfilling. And, of course, the, this really reaches a climax, this argument reaches a climax in the, in, the, in the early 1770s when people are calling openly in France for, uh, for open marriages, for, for, for no-fault divorce. And in the French Revolution, they passed laws which made it possible for a couple just to appear and say, we're sick of it. And uh, they and the procurator of Paris actually devised a kind of semi-religious ceremony in which he said, "Children of the patrie, children of the country, you know, you you had bound yourself in ties of love, but now you will be free to fly off and love again." It just goes on and on and on in in this in this very tender, sensitive divorce ceremony. Meanwhile. The marriage ceremony, which the procureur Chomet uh, drew up, was, okay, you're married, now get out. Because they actually, uh, they hated marriage. Because marriage was an obstacle to sexual promiscuity, which was one of the leading themes in the course of the Enlightenment, that people should be able to have sexual relations when and with whom and how often and what kind uh, they wanted. You know, Voltaire's famous uh, statement that, uh, about uh, homosexual behavior, one time makes you a philosopher, twice makes you a pervert. Well, uh, I, I'm afraid I can't go along with him on that one-time part of it. The, so, but people in America will always say, well, our revolution wasn't like that. You know, our American revolution was a revolution averted, not a revolution made. And there's, there's truth in this. But in the case of marriage, it's not true. With, within a generation, uh, in fact, very early after the American Revolution, the northern and mid-Atlantic states began revolutionizing their laws on marriage and divorce. In the Anglican Church, marriage was, uh, was very hard to get a divorce. You had to have, um, you had to have two... There were two procedures. One is the House of Lords had to grant you a po political right to divorce, and then it had to be given by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Only the rich could afford to do this. And there, there's a very funny uh, book by a French counter-revolutionary in which he says, the English, you know, have, no, have this easy divorce. No, it, it, it's not true at all. It was very, very difficult, and it was difficult in colonial America. The American Revolution sweeps that aside, except for the southern states. The southern states remain pretty tough. And the state where I grew up, uh, I was not born there, but I grew up in South Carolina, they had, in, uh, in uh, 1860, they still had laws that made divorce almost impossible. After uh, the end of the war between the states, the Reconstruction government passed the most... Uh, easy law on divorce. It was virtually no-fault divorce. And when that government was overthrown in 1876, the South Carolinians went back and repassed their very stringent anti-divorce law. But on the whole, on the whole, the 19th, in 19th century America, they went from English law, which made it almost impossible to get divorced, to something very close to no-fault divorce. Lord Bryce, who was a very famous English constitutional lawyer who studied the, uh, American law and uh, wrote some very serious studies, 
he said, he's writing about 1890, he said that the ease of divorce in America in 1890 is scandalous. And he quotes cases of the judge says, why do you want to get divorced, Mrs. Smith? And she'll say, I, my husband drinks, or my husband runs a saloon, or your honor, I'm sick of him quoting the Bible at me about what a wife's responsibility is. Motion granted. So this idea that, the, that, that marriage was only under attack in the 1960s, you know, and everything was perfect, and we had really stable marriages, this is not true. And it, is, it, can, it, it can be proved by historical evidence that the United States acted very much in the spirit of the French Revolution in trying to destroy the sanctity of marriage from almost the, 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 the days of the, uh, the end of the revolution. Well, I suppose, Dr. Fleming, that's the role of pop culture, right? Before the 60s, we had Wally and the Beav, and television was telling yeah. us that marriage was stable and everything was fine. But then television yeah. changes the narrative, and then we, we start to believe that everything's not fine. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the trouble with believing in pop culture. And I, I know some quite nice pro-family conservatives who believe all that. I used to work with one of them. And, he, and in fact, he watched Leave it to Beaver reruns because he thought that's the way the world used to be. But they forget that the world of the 1920s was, a world, was the jazz age. There were flappers. It was drug use, fornication, adultery were, were, the, were celebrated as the social norm in popular fiction, in movies. And uh, what came was, unfortunately, the, uh, uh, the Depression and World War II stopped the revolution for a while. And in the 50s, there were a lot of people who wanted to say, look, we don't want to go back to the revolution. But the revolution never went away. And so it reared its ugly head starting in, in the 1960s. And, and so when the United States was staged for a new, uh, a new wave of social revolution, and, and we got it good and hard. But it's important to remember that we'd gone through a social revolution of the 1920s, and in the, in the decades following the war between the states, there was a similar social revolution. We're going through another one now. And maybe we'll get, you know, a moderate Republican leadership that will slow things down. Won't reverse anything, but will slow the rate of, of uh, social revolution and moral revolution. And then we'll, and we'll, get a, we'll have a breathing space, and then the revolution will begin, and, and, we'll, be, and we'll be talking about marrying our pets. Well, and I suppose unfortunately, yeah, I shouldn't make jokes like that because every time I've made a joke like that in my life, it has come true. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't even take it as a joke because I, I, I yeah. think uh, that's where we're headed. And I think it's because you predicted that this would happen. You, pre you, you thought a long time ago that we would get to a place where we would have uh, same-sex uh, marriage legalization. But uh, a lot of people think this is the end, but you think there's still a further stage ahead. Oh, uh, there's there's no there's no end to revolution until uh, you, we reach the point that C.S. Lewis described as the as the abolition of man, uh, the attempt to uh, the attempt to destroy human nature. It's been going on for 250, 300 years. But yeah, I, I mentioned you know the whole animal rights business is a very profound war against human nature. The the vegan vegetarian movement is a you know we are not by nature vegetarians and it's a, it's a it's a, it's a revolution against creation. But you know in Europe uh, in several European countries like uh, uh, Belgium and the Netherlands they have lowered the age of sexual consent. I mean I used I used to be able to quote what the ages were but I think it's down to 14 in some countries. In other words, if, uh, if a teacher seduces a 14-year-old child, then the, all, all the teacher has to say is he consented. And so I believe that we're going to, that will be um, the, the, the one of the next uh, barriers to fall. And it'll be interesting because the same people that scream about sexual predators about on, uh, on children will be the very people who will advocate lowering the age of consent. Well, also, um, back in the early 70s, there was a move to popularize incest. Now, it failed. 
But magazines like Playboy would, would have cartoons like Incest, the game the whole family could play. I'm not making this stuff up. There were books. There was a book by a Swede named The Erotic Minorities. And, 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 and radical feminists were pushing this. Uh, and there were all sorts of horrible atrocities committed against the children of radicals in the name of sexual liberation. And believe me, that's, an, that's another barrier that they're going to be knocking, knocking against, the incest barrier. Mm-hmm. Not a particularly bright future, but I suppose this is the issue, Dr. Flamini, if we're looking at uh, a dark age, which we've we've understood is is the is the time we find ourselves in and we talked about in the in the zero episode for this series that we wouldn't be necessarily addressing current events but larger questions it so happens that you picked a topic for our first episode that was also something that's a current event part of what we're going to be doing in each of these episodes is talking about what the solution is or yeah. at least uh, what the practicum of it is for us as a uh, someone who's trying to be either more authentically human via vis-a-via religion or simply by, as, as you say, looking back at the classical world, what do we do in this situation? Uh, homosexual marriage, sodomitic marriage is now legal in the United States. And as you say, there's more coming down the pike. Um, what's to be done? Well, the the first thing is what's not to be done, and we've already said what that is, but it's not to waste a lot of time on uh, trying to push for legislation. First of all, the Supreme Court has an answer to that, and the federal courts in general have an answer that any legislation that we try to put up will be shut down. And by the way, uh, you after all these years versus Wade, that people in the pro-life movement, and by the way, I, I, I respect them, I agree with them entirely for their, their ambition, what they'd like to do, but, there isn't, but that, again, you cannot knock your head against that wall. That wall is not going to come down in my lifetime or your lifetime or our children's lifetime. Killing babies is not really the objective, but to separate sex and procreation. Defending homosexuality and homosexual marriages, that is not the point in itself, but that too, that too separates sex and procreation. And what they're wanting to do is to make, you know, promiscuous sex of every type will will be definitive in our society. So, well, let's look at what uh, let's look at, a, at, at an example. In, in between, uh, between the time of the apostles and the legalization and institutionalization of Christianity as a legal form under Constantine, you know, we have several centuries. What did Christians do? Did they, try, did they go to the Roman Senate and present a petition? Did they march up and down in front of the governor's office? Did they parade pictures of dead babies? Did they, you know, what, what did they do? They didn't do any of that. The answer is they tried, they led the best lives they could in that were consistent with the teachings of Christ and his church. And, 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 and secondly, and by the way, and they did not try to provoke their neighbors and make them angry over this. It's, this, is, this we're told explicitly in some very early apostolic writing. But second of all, by their example and by the decency and virtue of their lives, they, they made converts. And once you converted to Christianity, you were not going to murder your baby. You were not going to, uh, you were not going to practice abortion. And in fact, uh, I think it's the epistle uh, of Diognetus who says, uh, Epistle 2 Diognetus, where it says, we Christians aren't freaks. We don't wear funny clothes. We don't, we don't live in, in utopian communities. We pay our taxes. We serve in the army. We do everything everybody else does except for two things. We don't kill our babies, and we don't commit sodomy. Now, that's interesting. One of the earliest definitions of how are Christians different from Romans, that's the only two things that, that, uh, that, uh, that this early uh, Christian writer comes up with. So we have to begin by concentrating on ourselves, first of all, our, our, how we rear our children, how we lead our lives, and we need to clean up our, our, our church parishes and, and, to, and to really keep the feet of church leadership to the fire, so that they don't, uh, so that they don't weaken. 
But it's only by reconverting our neighbors, or at least showing to them without being smug about it, that our lives are perhaps more worth leading than, than their uh, trifling and hedonistic lives. And that is the way the church was built, and that is the only way we're going to recover ground. We're not going to recover any ground by, uh, by going and, uh, and uh, making, making angry marches to the U.S. Capitol or throwing mud at the Supreme Court. And, but this also requires that, that serious-minded Christians learn the truth and that, they, and that they communicate this truth to others and that they give up their, their fantasy that they live in a Christian country. This is one of the most destructive lies we can tell ourselves. Well, this is a good Christian country. We just misunderstand a few things. No, these people know what they're doing. They're building the world they want, and it's a world that doesn't include us. And we have to expect that, you know, we're, now we're just, we're just disapproved of. But at some point, it's going to be more than disapproval. They're going to start requiring churches to perform same-sex marriages or lose their tax-exempt status. And those churches had better be, they should leap forward. They should repudiate tax-exempt status right now because they don't want to take the money that is being offered by a government that authorizes uh, marriages between members of the same sex and the murder of children. Well, and I suppose that brings us back to the beginning, Dr. Fleming, because one of the reasons that you've stated is important for us to, to look at classical cultures that helps give this support and, and natural undergirding for questions of faith. But it, it seems, uh, as you've outlined, that that, that sort of natural uh, foundation and, and things that we, could, we used to be able to take for granted, well, at least, at least you can accept the natural law argument. All of that's gone, and you're proposing that really faith is the only way back, that this is essentially a religious task since uh, reason has been abandoned. It, 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 is, it, it, it is primarily uh, a, a religious task, but we must also rebuild our natural reason. We have to, we have to uh, clean up our, our understanding. One, one thing, for example, uh, that one could do, you know, let's just suppose, if I were a dictator, Today, somebody said, "Okay, you're a dictator, but you know what you what you propose has to be something that can work." Well, I cannot impose Christian law on a non-Christian population. Let's face it: a majority of of uh, church-going Christians do not agree that abortion is murder, or that uh, that that uh, homosexuals shouldn't be able to marry. So we, you, that's not the law. Those are not the laws to pass. You can't pass them because they can't be enforced and they won't be obeyed. But we could try to reinstitute something like uh, Roman marriage laws, which, re, which put marriage back in, uh, which would sort of, I won't say privatize, but more familiarize marriage, make mar bring families back into the picture, make it at least it possible which is, which is very difficult in most states now, possible for people to enter into a Christian union. And, I, and we need, I think, to make sure that when Catholics or Orthodox or Lutherans get married, that they get married uh, with a Christian understanding and not a, and not a modern legal understanding of marriage. And they should take vows, exchange vows, and even have, have written some sort of written documents that state what their principles are when they, in getting married. Now, there, are, uh, these, there is a kind of uh, prenuptial contract that, that eliminates no-fault divorce, for example. Some states have uh, proclaimed that to be uh, not, not constitutional. In others, it's, others it's accepted. But we need, to, as, as rapidly and as effectively as we can, to take, at least in our own minds, to take marriage away from the government, which has so abused it. You know, if homosexuals want to say, misuse the language and say they're married, well, frankly, I don't care. Let them do what they want to. But let, let us not be required to acknowledge it as marriage. 
Well, I think you, uh, I, I'm not entirely familiar with this, but I, I read an article before, Dr. Fleming, on Louisiana has a, a type of marriage called covenant marriage, I think. Yes, exactly. In which they, they, there's a sort of enforcement, a self-enforcement of, of a stricter marriage law. Yes, exactly. That's that's exactly, uh, the, the covenant marriage is exactly what I'm talking about. It, it is, now some of it is a little bit, uh, It's sometimes it's a dubious law and also, some of the covenant marriage rules are so weak as to amount to nothing because if both parties then agree to the divorce, then it becomes very, uh, very easy to arrange. But uh, it is certainly covenant marriage is probably covenant marriage is like homeschooling. Uh, Neither one may be exactly completely consistent either with tradition or be a complete answer to the problem, but they are positive and creative steps that bring power back to where it belongs and takes it away from the government. Well, I would recommend, I suppose, one of the the things we'll always be doing in episodes is for further reading, please look at. Uh, Obviously, we will direct you to the the Foundation's blog, Fleming.Foundation. Dr. Fleming touched briefly on his stance on abortion um, in his book, Uh, The Morality of Everyday Life, is well worth reading further on this topic. I suppose we'll probably address that topic in a future episode as well. But if you haven't read that uh, work, you should. Um, can you direct us on on further reading, Doctor Fleming? Beyond that, uh, although I've just pitched two of your two of your works, so you can't recommend anything written by Thomas Fleming. <laughs> um, uh, what I what I do think the the best thing that can be done is for people to go back and begin a systematic study of the early church. Uh, for those of you who uh, those of our listeners who are Catholic or Orthodox or in fact or Anglican or Lutheran for that matter, um, there's sometimes too much a tendency to look at modern theologians or what uh, or what various papal pronouncements on on these subjects. I think it's much more fruitful for many reasons to look at the early uh, writings, some of which are grouped together as you know the apostolic uh, apostolic father Saint Ignatius. Uh, uh, Herm, the Shepherd of Hermas. These early writings are important for two reasons. One, they were in a period of great early f- uh, creative ferment for the church. It's when the church was first facing a lot of these difficult social and moral questions and grappling with answers. And the reason these books are so important is because these 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 letters and essays were often read in early Christian churches as almost having not quite equal authority, but but having almost the authority of Scripture. The second reason is they are grappling with the same world we're grappling with, and that is not the world of Thomas Aquinas or St. Alphonsus or the world of uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. We're living in a world in which the powers that be hate Christianity. And if we continue to, th- to think that we can apply directly the wisdom of great writers who lived in an age when the rulers of the world had to at least pretend to act and think as Christians, we're making a, we're making a grave mistake. So the early, the educating ourselves in the, in the early uh, thinking of the church, and by the way, these, these early epistles and writings, they are not technical theology. They're, ri- they're addressed to normal people, and they're available widely in, a, in different translations, both Catholic and Protestant. And I think you, you'll find an enormous amount of, uh, of help, because you can see Christians writing in an age in which uh, you could be put to death for, be- for being a Christian. And that's the proper model for us, not not the high Middle Ages when when uh, the the church was defended. I suppose another way of looking at it, Dr. Fleming is if you think you got it bad now, take a look back. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, you know, every generation thinks it's either the best or the worst. You know, or or both. You know, Dickens' famous beginning of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, you know, maybe maybe we're too uh, too self-important. I talk to a lot of Catholics who say, you know, the church has never uh, been in 
the mess it's in today. Well, that's partly true. The mess it's in today is different from previous messes. But, you know, if you look at the age of Leo X, you know, who famously said, since God has chosen to give us the papacy, we propose to enjoy it, and in, and enjoy it he did, all 350 pounds of voluptuous flesh that he had, the church has been in terrible, terrible conditions and times, usually for the same reason that we are going through such a bad time, that is, the weakness and frailness and stupidity and greed of the human beings who run the church. This is not something new. And we, we might, our outrage might be dimmed a little bit if we realize that we can fight through these things. And yes, there's, all, there's going to be every kind of division and hostility and eruption, but, uh, but in the end, it is the Holy Spirit working and not us that will save the day. Well, and on that, and that, that note, Dr. Fleming, uh, the importance of going back and studying uh, the early Christian fathers, as you say, the apostolic tradition, um, along with the Dr. Fleming reading list that I proposed. I think it's a good place for us to end today's episode. Thanks so much for your time today, and we look forward to our next episode in the series. Thank you.